This is the Poetry Corner podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. Today, we're going to talk about another new book of poetry. I think sometimes we think of poetry as something that was written long ago and is not something that still happens today. Now, hopefully this podcast, if you've been listening to it uh, for a while, has shown that no, in fact, poetry is being written today, often very good poetry. We just uh, recently looked at the new collection by the Poet Laureate of America, Tracy K. Smith. And today we're going to look at another book which came out just a couple months after Tracy Smith's book. This is called uh, American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin by Terence Hayes. Now, Terence Hayes' book has been getting a lot of buzz. Um, a lot of these sonnets that appear in this book have appeared in really big publications that feature poetry, The New Yorker, Poetry Magazine, and others. So this book has been hotly anticipated, not just because these sonnets are interesting and uh, evocative and often provocative, but because Terence Hayes has been really kind of lighting up the poetry world for a while now. His first collection came out, I believe, in 1999, and every couple years since then, he's released collections that have been at least notable, uh, critically uh, respected, if not lauded. Uh, and by 2010, he was winning the National Book Award for Poetry. So he's kind of a poetry star right now. He and Tracy Smith, I would say, are two of the poets to watch closely, though they're pretty different poets. And it's wonderful to see diversity among styles and forms and approaches to poetry, even in the most accomplished poets writing today. It's easy to attach onto one style of poetry, or maybe if you're a novel reader, one genre of novel and kind of never leave it. And one of the things that poets and writers and artists working today often have to do for us is say, oh, you liked my last thing that I did, or you like this thing that's very popular. I'm doing something different, or I'm going to do something different. I know you liked my last stuff, but I'm going to go in a new direction. And this is something that we were actually just talking about in a college class here at St. Constantine uh, a week ago. What do we do when artists go in a direction we don't expect, or maybe we don't immediately like? How do we mature in our taste with an artist? How do we become dedicated enough to an artist or an art form that we're willing to say, okay, a new thing is happening. I'm going to go along with it. Well, I think Terrence Hayes is doing a, a new thing in this collection of poems. And uh, I want to talk about a few of them that strike me as both doing a new thing in an exciting way, but also drawing on a centuries and centuries old tradition, namely the sonnet. I'm going to put out a rating warning for this book. Most of the poems and books of poetry we talk about, I would kind of unreservedly recommend for anyone to read. Tracy Smith's poetry that we talked about last time uh, does deal with some, some mature topics, as slavery, oppression, sometimes violence to the human body. Hayes' book deals with all those things at a level that's pretty mature. And so if you're going to go out and read Hayes, just know he's not censoring his language in this collection. I'm going to read a few poems that are, I think, palatable to all ears. But Hayes and Smith, uh, to a slightly lesser degree, they're writing about things both in history and in the present that 
have to do with human pain, human sadness, human evil. And it's something I think we need to ask for from poetry, that it's not all sweet and nice, but also it means that we need to approach it knowing that sometimes poets are going to write about things that are painful or uncomfortable. I want to look at a couple of poems in this collection that sometimes do go to painful places, but also have fun with language. So Hayes in writing American sonnets for my past and future assassin, I mean, even that title is much longer than most poetry titles. He does something interesting. He doesn't have different titles for any of these sonnets, and there are upwards of 80 sonnets in this collection. Every sonnet is titled American Sonnet for my past and future assassin. And the title after a while, you start, I think, as a reader. I know I did. I started just kind of tuning out the titles as I read. But then after a while, I started paying attention to the title again. And this repetition of American Sonnet for My Past and Future Assassin started to become almost hypnotic. It's also a title that goes from a place of kind of historical security to historical vulnerability. American Sonnet. Oh, how nice that we could imagine, you know, Phyllis Wheatley or Philip Furneaux or Henry Wadsworth Longfellow or um, Robert Frost to write a poem called American Sonnet. This is a very, very safe title. But who is it for? It's not an American sonnet for the people, American sonnet for democracy. No, it's an American sonnet for my past and future assassin. This word assassin is very interesting. It's not murderer though I think that connotation is carried. Assassination is not a particularly nice word. It doesn't necessarily imply that the murder or killing is licit. In fact, seems to indicate a particular political motivation for killing. It's also not American sonnet for my assassin. It's for my past and future. There's this idea that assassination has taken place in the past and will take place in the future, and it's very personalized by Hayes. It's my assassin, not your assassin or Lincoln's assassin or King's assassin. It's my past and my future assassin. I want to start by reading the first sonnet in this collection. American Sonnet for My Past and Future Assassin. The black poet would love to say his century began with Hughes, or, God forbid, Wheatley, but actually, it began with all the poetry weirdos, worriers, warriors, poetry whiners and winos falling from ship bows, sunset bridges and windows. In a second, I'll tell you how little writing rescues. My hunch is that Sylvia Plath was not especially fun company, a drama queen, thin-skinned and skittery. She thought her poems were ordinary. What do you call a visionary who does not recognize her vision? Orpheus was alone when he invented writing. His manic drawing became a kind of, kind of writing when he sent his beloved a sketch of an eye with an X struck through it. He meant, I am blind without you. She thought he meant, I never want to see you again. It is possible he meant that too. So a couple words about this sonnet. It's 14 lines. It includes rhyme and some metrical regularity, but as you heard when I read it, it kind of begs to be performed. There's a, there's a driving energy to it that's bigger and a little looser than a strict iambic pentameter, which I think we expect from sonnets. I mentioned a Frost, Longfellow, Wheatley earlier. All of them are writing an iambic pentameter. 
Frost and Longfellow, especially in their sonnets, Hayes isn't writing an iambic pentameter, but you heard lots of rhyme and also a slant rhyme and alliteration. This wonderful poetry weirdos and worriers, warriors, poetry whiners and winos falling from ship bows. Fantastic. It's almost like he's dragging in another genre here. It sounds a little bit like a couple lines of a rap song of hip hop. And Hayes, he has one ear tuned to hip hop, I think. He, uh, later in the collection, will name drop the not particularly famous, but I suppose maybe still popular, rapper Genuine, and not necessarily held up as a great poet by Hayes, but he's talking to a context where people will know who Genuine is. Hayes himself is African-American. He is talking in this poem particularly about the black poet and his conception of American poetry. So it's interesting who he, as a black poet himself, speaking in a context where black poets will be listening to him. He is a poetry teacher. He teaches at uh, University of Pittsburgh right now. It's interesting the poets that he singles out to either accept as in his tradition his forebears and also those that he's uncomfortable seeing as forebears or maybe disappointed in it's a fun like opportunity for him at the beginning of this collection where he's going to write a lot of sonnets he's going to talk a lot about being a black man in america today he's going to talk a lot about history and black experience throughout american history he gets to kind of clear the deck let us know whose side he's on, whose side he's not on, what poets he's ambivalent about. And he does it masterfully and kind of casually in this poem. So the first poet he brings up is Hughes, Langston Hughes. Langston Hughes is a titan of modernist poetry, and especially he's often seen as the greatest of the poets of what we call the Harlem Renaissance, this flowering of poetry and fiction and art and music in Harlem in the 20s and 30s that just really establishes Harlem as a place of great poetic fervor, poetic fruitfulness, and also launches Hughes even beyond Harlem to being kind of a world-famous poet. Hughes would end up traveling all over the world with his poetry. So he says, the black poet would love to say his century began with Hughes. Okay, cool. Hughes is, is you know, this titan of American poetry. Sure, let's say it began with Hughes. Or, God forbid, Wheatley. Now, I've made no qualms on this podcast about being a huge fan of Phyllis Wheatley. Uh, Phyllis Wheatley, though, there's a lot of criticism. Uh, Henry Louis Gates has a great book on this. There's a lot of criticism of Wheatley for not having a particularly developed consciousness as a black poet. Of course, Wheatley was enslaved. Wheatley wrote a lot of her poems while still a slave uh, in the lead up to the American Revolution. I think it's hard to apply critical categories and critical focuses that we might give to poets today to Wheatley. She's in a very different situation than we are, very different person, very different culture than we're in. But I see in Hayes here a desire to say, I'm not doing the same thing as Wheatley. Wheatley isn't where the century of poetry begins for the black poet. Now, it's interesting, he says, century. This is written in 2018. Hughes's major poems are actually starting to be written in the teens and 20s. So it's been about a century since Hughes. It's been 250 years 
since Wheatley. So it's interesting that he brings Wheatley in here. But if you're a black poet writing in America, Wheatley really is one of the first major black poets in American history. She was the first black woman to ever publish a book in America, let alone a book of poetry. So she's important, but he, you see him you see him taking sides a little bit. Hughes, not Wheatley. But actually, he continues, it began with all the poetry weirdos and worriers, warriors, poetry whiners and winos falling from ship bows, sunset bridges and windows. Now, this is interesting because he just named two great poets of the American tradition, especially of the black American poetic tradition. But now he's not giving us names. He's giving us a group of people, a category of people. Poetry weirdos, worriers, warriors, whiners, and winos. And then he gives two images that are incredibly important in American history and poetry. He says, falling from ship bows, though he has just said winos, and so I want to read it ship bows. I suppose uh, both would work. Falling from ship bows, sunset bridges and windows. Now, this image of jumping off a ship is evocative of the Middle Passage, where you have slaves being taken on ships from the west coast of Africa to America. And we have accounts both of slaves trying to escape jumping off of ships, but also, even more tragically, ships caught in storms that have people shackled in their holds, and when the ship goes down, all the slaves die. They're not given a chance to be rescued. And Longfellow has this haunting poem called The Witnesses, where the bones of the slaves from the bottom of the Atlantic are speaking up to the people of the present. We are the witnesses, they, they uh, repeat. So this jumping from ship bows is in particular very evocative of of the slave trade and of those who died in the slave trade and this jumping from a ship bow in particular is a kind of a, a terrible agency right this i want to die or take my chances on the high seas rather than be enslaved so there's that going on very powerful but then he says sunset bridges and windows now this I would argue, and I'd be interested to see whether Hayes was literally thinking of this or not, this sounds a lot like Allen Ginsberg's Howl to me. Allen Ginsberg's Howl was written in the 50s, beat poetry. Now, Ginsberg was not a black poet. Ginsberg was Jewish. Ginsberg was a bit of a beat hippie visionary, struggled with mental health issues a lot, and wrote about that and writes about a lot of his friends in the 50s who are also struggling with mental health issues. And he has these, these crazy hypnotic images of people jumping off of buildings and buildings collapsing and kind of this suicidal apocalypse that's happening in his poetry in the 50s. Um, there's a lot to be said about Ginsburg. He deserves his own podcast episode. But it's interesting that Ginsburg is here, 1950s beat kind of, uh, craziness, but also 19th century and 18th century visions of the Middle Passage. Both of these, Hayes is saying, is where poetry is starting for him. And even in his, in his repetition of consonant sounds, the w sound, poetry, weirdos, warriors, warriors, whiners, whinos, that is very Ginsburg. He's getting that, I, I mentioned hip-hop earlier, but 
I think hip-hop owes something to the beat poetry of the mid-century. There's whole histories of how beat poetry and hip-hop are connected. I'll leave that to the literary historians. But I'm seeing both here, and it's exciting. In a second, he says after this, I'll tell you how little writing rescues. It's a bit sad. We just had this image of, of desperation, both mental desperation and also physical social desperation of trying to get away from slavery, trying to get away from situations that one is locked in, either physically or metaphorically. And then he says, in a second, I'll tell you how little writing rescues. Is writing hope for these poets who are throwing themselves off of things? Uh, maybe not so much. And then we have this bringing up of perhaps the greatest example in the 20th century of someone who wasn't rescued by writing, Sylvia Plath. My hunch is that Sylvia Plath was not especially fun company. Uh, it's kind of a joke. I can almost see a stand-up comedian of a literary bent saying this on stage. But Sylvia Plath, one of our great writers, wrote one of the most important popular novels of the century, The Bell Jar, wrote very intense poetry in both The Colossus and Ariel. Writing didn't save her. She ended her own life young. So it's interesting that Hayes, at the beginning of this collection, where he's going to write a bunch of sonnets, he's saying, Hughes, yes, Wheatley, not so much. Plath, ah, she wasn't helped by poetry. And then this whole host of poetry weirdos, winos, whiners. In naming them, he's kind of calling on them, even negatively. And then, and I love this, and I, and I think this is why Hayes, I think we need to keep listening to him, and why Hayes is an important poet in the history of poetry. Um, who knows whether we'll be reading him in 50 years, 100 years, but... He is connecting himself to the history of poetry, both the history of black poetry, the history of American poetry, and then at the end of this sonnet, the mythic history of poetry. Orpheus was alone when he invented writing. His manic drawing became a kind of writing when he sent his beloved a sketch of an eye with an X struck through it. He meant, I am blind without you. She thought he meant, I never want to see you again. It is possible he meant that too. It's also kind of a joke, but sad because who is Orpheus? Orpheus is the great inventor of writing, uh, the great uh, lyric poet of Greek mythology. And what happens to his beloved uh, Eurydice? She ends up in hell, in Hades. And when he goes to get her very famously, he plays his lyre so beautifully and sings so beautifully that Hades allows Eurydice to go back up to the land of the living with him, but there's always that caveat as long as on the way out, Orpheus does not look back at her. Of course, she stumbles, Orpheus looks back at her just as they're about to leave the underworld, and all is lost. So we have this Hughes, Wheatley, Ginsburg, Plath, unnamed slave poets, unnamed beat poets, and then Orpheus himself, who I think is an image of once again, writing that doesn't save. He could enchant all of hell with his poetry, with his song, but it still didn't save her. It's a bleak place to start as a poet. But remember the title of this collection. This is about assassination in the end and addressing your assassin. Uh, I want to flip to a poem where I think he's most explicit about this assassin idea. So this is called, well, once again, American Sonnet for My Past and Future Assassin. 
After you turn off Shop Road, where the flag leans forward like an old goose contemplating her next step, ride for another half hour or so beyond Bluff Estates, Starlight and Harlem Street, to find inside what is Betty Jo's fish and chicken shack by day, a mobilized after-hours jute joint full of the kinds of dancers and drinkers, loners and lovers, who have probably never listened to a poem or banjo at length. In this we may be alike, assassin, you and me. We believe we want what's best for humanity. I'll probably survive dancing with the kinds of people who must find refuge among the sweat and rancor of a fish and chicken shack. But assassin, they'll probably murder you. Do you ask why you should die for me if I would not die for you? I do. This reminds me a lot of a poem that we talked about by Tracy Smith in our last podcast, where we have these six or seven lines of description of someone driving, and then it's revealed who's driving, and it's kind of a shock. Now, in Smith's poem, there's someone driving uh, down from the hills through nature, and it turns out the driver is God himself. Here, it's a little more mundane, but no less shocking. We have this person driving beyond the Bluff Estates, Harlem Street, to the Betty Joe's Fish and Chicken Shack. And who is it? It's this assassin. And I admit to, and I think this is intentional in Hayes' part, a little bit of confusion about the relationship between the speaker and the assassin. And I want to dig into it here. A mobilized after-hour juke joint full of the kinds of dancers and drinkers, loners and lovers, who have probably never listened to a poem or banjo at length. In this we may be alike, assassin, you and me. We believe we want what's best for humanity. So these are loosely rhythmic lines, but it is a rhyming couplet, which a Shakespeare sonnet often does at the end. This comes right at the ninth line of the poem. Now, it's easy to read these and forget their sonnets because they don't have a strict rhyme scheme, but Hayes knows his sonnet tradition. And the sonnet tradition isn't just iambic pentameter and, you know, Petrarchan or Shakespearean rhyme schemes, though it can be that. It doesn't have to be that. It's also setting up a situation or a problem and then developing it or gaining new insight in it. Or sometimes Shakespeare does this, straight up solving the problem of the situation. Usually, and this is often in the Italian sonnet, it's the first eight lines where we have the setup of the situation or problem or conundrum. And then from the eighth to the ninth line, there's a movement or turn, which we call a volta, into the further clarification, illumination, uh, enlightenment, solution, what have you. And the eighth line of this poem is probably never listen to a poem or a banjo at length. It's the end of the description of the people who are at this kind of funnily specific, humorously specific, I should say, Betty Joe's Fish and Chicken Shack. So these are dancers and drinkers, loners and lovers. Once again, he's playing with these uh, repeated sounds. We had worriers, whiners, winos in the last poem we looked at. Here we have dancers, drinkers, loners, and lovers. They probably never listened to a poem or banjo at length. These are the people who aren't the most literate, aren't the most literary or educated or cultured. These are just regular folk. In this we may be alike, assassin, starts the ninth line. So we have this turn from this description of people at a place where the described 
protagonist, uh, main character of this poem is going. And then we have a turn to the you and me language, which is going to dominate the last six lines of this sonnet. Now, the last six lines of a sonnet are traditionally called a sestet, meaning um, this group of six lines. The first eight lines are called an octave. So Hayes puts a rhyming couplet in the first two lines of the sestet, not often done either in Petrarchan or in Shakespearean rhyme schemes. So he's playing with them, but he's still riffing on them. We may be alike assassin, you and me. We believe we want what's best for humanity. Are both the assassin and the assassinated trying to do what's right? I mean, this is a problem for philosophers. Plato says all men pursue what they believe to be the good. It just happens that lots of people are mistaken as to the good. That is something that Aquinas says as well. We all pursue the good. It just, um, we're not always great at seeing what the good is. There's an implication, and I think Hayes wants this. There's an implication that, of course, the assassin is doing what's wrong, but there is this belief he's doing what's right. Now he has, uh, we believe we want what's best for humanity. I'll probably survive dancing with the kinds of people who must find refuge among the sweat and rancor of a fish and chicken shack. But assassin, they'll probably murder you. So now we have this distinction. We have this setup of the main character ending up at a fish and chicken shack. I am not sure what exact setting he's describing, but it seems to me a place where common folk hang out, perhaps in a suburban or even rural setting. So these are common folk, maybe even implied lower class folk. Hayes is saying, or at least the speaker is saying, I could go to that kind of place and be okay. You, they might murder you. It's very interesting. This is an assassin being addressed, but he's talking about people murdering the assassin. I think there's this acknowledgement, and this comes up here and there throughout this collection, that Hayes feels in danger of being assassinated by more than just one type of person. If this was, you know, American sonnet for the Ku Klux Klan, we might say, okay, he's talking about particular organized violence against the African-American community. But there's an ominous larger threat that he's talking about. And here he's not saying these people are black, these people are white. There's more of a class or even a commoners versus culture distinction in this poem. But he's also showing, look, my assassin, if they ended up among the right people, they could be in danger too. This is a setting where danger is relative. If our speaker is with the assassin, our speaker is in danger. If the assassin is with the people that our speaker is safe with, the assassin is in danger. This is a... It's almost, you get the feeling of like a Wild West landscape. Anyone could get shot, depending on who says what, or who walks into what saloon. But assassin, they'll probably murder you. And then we have this question, which I think is one of the more important questions in the whole collection. Do you ask why you should die for me if I will not die for you? I do. So two things are being said here. He's asking of his assassin, do you ask why you should die for me if I will not die for you? Do you wonder why you demand me to die 
but you won't lay down your life for me. And then he flips it and says, I wonder that. Now, there's an ambiguity. Is he saying, I wonder why you wouldn't die for me, but you asked me to die? But it could also be, and I'm trying to not get confused in my language here, it could also be, I too wonder whether I would be willing to die for you. If I was in your shoes, would I be willing to die for you? And of course, this brings us around to questions of self-sacrifice, of loving one's enemy, of dying for those who are undeserving. But also with this above acknowledgement that given the situation, this assassin might be in as much danger as the speaker. I think Hayes, and this is 50 pages into the collection, I think Hayes has written himself into this very human identification, even with someone who hates us, even with someone who wants to kill us. We're still human. We still both face danger. And he's doing it in a sonnet, which is riffing on sonnet traditions, which has a very strong movement from octave to sestet, but is also looser, more free, more casual and colloquial than sonnets we're used to. I want to end with a poem that is a little more happy. The first two poems we've looked at are both uh, sort of clearing the deck of poetry, asking questions about, gosh, is poetry even, even something that can help? Now, he writes 80-ish sonnets, so I hope he thinks that poetry can help a little bit. I want to turn to a poem where he talks about, well, heroes of several different varieties that, that is a little more positive, that gives some hope both from the ancient past and the modern present. American Sonnet for My Past and Future Assassin. The subject is allowed up to 20 years after leaving the home of his or her parents to reconcile all but the darkest of infractions. The deeper the wound, the more heroic the healing, as the story of Aeneas is the Aeneid, and the story of Odysseus the Odyssey. The name of the subject is as mysterious as the journey. The subject must speak as if he or she is witness to a story no one who has lived in the entire tangled future and history of the world has told. What if it were possible to make a noise so lovely people would pay to hear it continuously for a century or so? Unbelievably, Miles Davis and John Coltrane standing within inches of each other didn't explode. This is probably the most formally loose of all the poems we've read, but what a meditation on heroism. This is a book about trauma, and Hayes goes into trauma of blacks in history and of the present, and there's an ominous, I mentioned the Ku Klux Klan earlier, here and there, there, there are more explicit, I think, uh, statements and doom sayings even about the current dangers of racial violence in the world. But here he has these images of heroes who, because of their deep wound, the deeper the wound, the more heroic the healing and the possibility of healing. Aeneas is healed through his journey. Odysseus is healed through his journey, arguably. I mean, we should talk sometime about the hero's journey in ancient epic. Here, it seems, he's suggesting they are. And then he asks this question. And I think this question is what makes me feel like when he says, writing doesn't help much, doesn't save us in the first sonnet. This is what makes me think uh, that's not the, the final statement on things for him. He says, what if it were possible to make a noise so lovely people would pay to hear it continuously for a century or so? Now, he's going to talk about Miles Davis and John Coltrane 
Miles Davis is kind of blue, which is one of the great jazz albums of all time. Uh, Davis is on trumpet. Coltrane's on saxophone. If you haven't listened to it, go listen to it a thousand times. It's, it's fantastic. He says, what if it's possible to make a noise so lovely people would pay to hear it continuously for a century? Then with Coltrane and Davis, we have this, um, we have this implication that he's talking about an album like Coltrane and Davis made. But he's also, dear listeners, as I often say, he's talking about poetry. What if it's possible to, for poetry to be lovely? to entrance a century's worth of hearers, then maybe, maybe, just maybe, poetry could help those who need help. Poetry could be a place where even assassin and assassinated could maybe, possibly, begin to understand one another. And I think Hayes's humor comes out well, gently, in these last two lines. Unbelievably, Miles Davis and John Coltrane, standing within inches of each other, didn't explode. These guys are heroes. I wish we could read more. We're out of time for this podcast, but he has another great sonnet about James Baldwin, the mid-20th century, uh, both novelist and essayist, uh, that's just celebrating how cool his face looks and how it's like valleys and rivers and the American landscape. Hayes is a poet who, I, as I've said, it's difficult to read. He often talks about real trauma, real dark things. But we need poets who will do that. As I mentioned a couple episodes ago, we need poetry to not just console us. We need poetry to disturb and make us uncomfortable when we need to be disturbed and made uncomfortable. And Hayes does that. No, I don't always agree with Hayes. I think maybe he's a little too um, dismissive of poets that I think are fantastic like Wheatley. But... What he's doing in these American sonnets is going to be something that people talk about for a while afterwards. He's inspiring a new group of students, just like people like Smith is, to both write about very contemporary issues. He talks about the 2016 election in this collection. He's not particularly uh, positive about things you might not be surprised to hear, uh, but he's tying it to poetic tradition, not just the American poetic tradition, Hughes, Wheatley, the American sonnet, but also all the way back to the mythic past. And for that, he deserves our attention. Thanks for hanging out with Hayes. Thanks for listening to new poetry. These aren't all going to be classics, but they're happening right now, and I think they deserve our attention if we want to start caring about poetry and the possibilities in it. This has been the Poetry Corner Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. If you want to contact us with comments, suggestions, feedback, email us at poetrycorner at stconstantine.org. Thank you.